the Jodcast. Keeping calm and carrying on. With Adam Averson, Melanie Jondra, Jen Gupta, Leo Huckvale, Libby Jones, Tim O'Brien and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. August 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Jen and joining me today are Leo and Adam. Hi guys. Hello. And before we get started with the show, I just wanted to say that we have a new Jogcast video up. Woo! Woo! This is a video that we recorded at the National Astronomy Meeting earlier this year in April, and it follows me around while I show you what a day in the life is like at a conference. So you basically get to see a lot of me. And my arm. And my Adam's arm's in there. Arm. <laughs> Very yes. excited. You can try and play spot Adam's arm if you see it. <laughs> Um, let us know. So in the show this time, we find out how studying galaxy clusters can tell us more about the universe, and Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your questions. But first, before all of that, Adam caught up with Dr. Robert Lang to find out what's going on with ALMA. Hi. From a European point of view, there's been some very good news regarding ALMA in the past week as we record this. It's currently the 2nd of uh, August. So I'm in the Jogcast studio talking to the European ALMA instrument scientist, Robert Lang. Robert, could you tell us a bit more about ALMA's new arrival? Yes. What's um, exciting recently is that the first of the European 12-metre antennas has been taken up to the high site uh, at 5,000 metres and is in the process of being integrated into the array, more or less as we speak. Um, we haven't got any results back from it in the uh, in the main array, um, but um, by tomorrow or the next day we probably should have. Very cool. So what's unique about these uh, European antennas? Well, um, they're a new and really quite advanced design. Um, the the different 12-metre antennas in the ALMA project um, have been designed in subtly different ways, all to meet a really very demanding specification. Um, so what's hard about this is that they have to have a surface which remains very, very stable and accurate, um, in fact, to um, 25 microns. Um, they have to do this outside uh, in a really rather hostile environment, so they have to work from minus 20 to plus 20 degrees centigrade. Um, at 5,000 metres in a really rather windy um, and um, uh, and difficult um, uh, set of conditions. Um, in the process, they have to be able to point anywhere in the sky to an accuracy of two arc seconds, root mean square, um, which is the sort of accuracy which has hitherto been obtained really only in optical telescopes, which live in nice um, domes with wind protection. Um, and actually making that happen outside in the wind is really quite hard. Even worse is the specification for offset pointing, so that if you um, peek up on your, your antenna on a, on a point calibrator whose position is known, and then offset to your target, which might be a degree or two away, you have to be able to do that to 0.6 arc seconds RMS. And that is very, very hard indeed. Um, and it's that level of um, engineering that has forced some interesting design choices. So for the European antennas, what's special about them is that they're a very, very rigid structure um, and they're dynamically very good. So if you hear them moving, if you're, if you're standing next to them, you can barely hear them move. Um, and they move very, very quickly, um, something like um, uh, 10 degrees a second flat out. Um, and uh, they're very stiff in order to maintain this rather good pointing performance. And the way that we actually do absolute pointing uh, is a little bit different from what's been done in the past. Uh, what we have to do is to correct for thermal deformations of the structure. So the, the sun heats up one side of the antenna more than the other, um, and the whole structure tilts over sideways. So we have to sense that and correct it, which we do by having 86 thermometers positioned over the structure of the antenna. Uh, so we then use a model to predict where the antenna is going to point, um, and uh, correct that, uh, and, and so maintain our pointing performance. And actually proving that that system worked was one of the headaches of the last year's work. Um, we had to do that um, at our 3,000 metre base camp using a, an optical pointing telescope, um, and we had to show, we had to demonstrate to the ALMA project that we did indeed meet this rather demanding specification, um, with this um, uh, with this thermometer system, and indeed we've managed to do that. 
The other thing that we have to do is to sense and correct uh, deformations due to the wind. So the antennas are, are battered by winds uh, in their primary operating conditions up to 10 meters a second. We can operate up to rather more than that. Um, and so um, we have a, a really very fast response, specially designed pair of tilt meters, uh, which sense the structure as it, it as it gets hit by a, a wind gust, and then the servo system is 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 um, is set to adjust for that very quickly, so that we can basically maintain the very good tracking and offset pointing of the antenna even at high and um, and gusty wind conditions. So those were the um, those are the big pointing challenges, and they're they're also met by the other antennas in the Alma array. Uh, in, in, in subtly different ways, but all of the brands of antennas, I think, uh, now do meet the specification. So ultimately, what proportion of the full ALMA uh, complement of antennas will be made of this European design? Well, the main array is of, of 50 12-meter antennas to do interferometry, and half of those will be European. In addition, uh, we have um, a set of um, 16 7-meter antennas provided by our our Japanese colleagues, uh, which are designed basically to image much larger scale structure than uh, than the main array. Um, and finally, we have an additional four 12-meter antennas, also Japanese, whose primary purpose is not to do interferometry, but rather to measure the sky as, as, as single dishes. And we, we use these three elements of the array, the 12-meter the antennas, the 7-meter antennas, and the total power dishes, in order to be able to image all scales of structure um, across a piece of sky. So they're all essential to the, the full operation of the array. And the arrival of uh, this European antenna at the high site brings the uh, the number of antennas at the observing site up to 16, which is a, a significant number for ALMA, as it was the, the number advertised for early science. Uh, would you like to say something about what's going to happen? Yes, I mean, we've just been through um, our first round of proposal submission for um, for ALMA. So this is the so-called early science phase, cycle zero. Um, and this is the first chance for the astronomical community at large to use ALMA. So uh, the response has really been extremely gratifying, um, perhaps slightly too much so. Um, we received more than 900 proposals, um, and in the early science phase, which starts at the end of September, we will actually not have all of that much time available for observing, probably 700 hours in total over the period, because the array is still being developed and commissioned. And therefore, that means that there's an oversubscription rate of somewhere between 9 and 10 to 1. So the process of winnowing down those proposals um, by scientific merit and, um, and, and technical feasibility is a rather complicated one, uh, which is happening more or less as we speak. Um, uh, Many scientists are now involved in the peer review process, which will be taking place at, uh, in, in Chile um, this month and next. Um, and so at the end of that, we'll have a, a small number of proposals which are suited to the ALMA Early Science Array, which is nothing like the full capability of ALMA. It's quite, um, quite a small array in terms of numbers of dishes and um, the separations between them. But it's still a larger correct collecting area than any um, of the existing millimetre or submillimetre arrays, and it's on our superb site. So we hope that there will be um, significant scientific breakthroughs, even from this first phase of, of ALMA operation. Thank you for that, Robert. Pleasure to be here. And if you'd like to know more about ALMA and interferometry in general, you can check out Robert's last Jogcast appearance in the October 2009 show, or me talking about ALMA in the February Extra 2011 episode. Thanks for that, Adam. And in our second interview, Libby and Melanie spoke to Dr. Graham Smith about the gravitational lensing of galaxy clusters. Joining me on the Jogcast today is Dr. Graham Smith of the University of Birmingham. Graham is working on a survey of the local cluster of galaxies. So, Graham, would you like to tell us some about this survey you're producing? Uh, yes, so we're observing um, a large sample of uh, galaxy clusters, approximately 100, and we're observing them with, with a wide range of telescopes, all the way from radio uh, wavelengths through to X-ray, and the reason why we're doing this is to is to figure out the best way to measure the mass of galaxy clusters. This is important because galaxy clusters are claimed to be very powerful probes of cluster cosmology, um, in particular uh, to try to measure the properties of dark energy uh, that is driving the current accelerating expansion of the universe. And if we don't understand how to measure the mass of a galaxy cluster, then such experiments will ultimately not work. 
So how do you go about measuring the mass of these clusters of galaxies? Uh, well, there are several methods available. Um, the one that I particularly concentrate on myself is to use a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. So in general terms, gravitational lensing is the deflection of light by mass. So if you imagine, if you imagine a galaxy cluster, so this is a um, collection of galaxies that are all sort of orbiting around together in the same region of space, uh, and behind this galaxy cluster you have what you could imagine as a cosmic wallpaper, as it were, of lots of uh, faint galaxies at higher redshifts behind the cluster. By redshift you mean distance, and looking back into the past here. Of course I do, yes, that's right. Uh, so these more distant, the light from these more distant galaxies is deflected by the, by the mass uh, content of the foreground uh, galaxy cluster. And their shapes are subtly changed by this um, deflection by the foreground uh, cluster mass. And so I measure these, uh, these faint galaxy shapes, and from the statistics of their, of, their, of their shapes, I can build computer models of the, of the mass in these, in these clusters. And um, this method has a variety of advantages and disadvantages. Um, the, the strongest advantage is that we don't need to make any assumption about the physics of the physics of galaxy clusters in order to make the mass measurement. What do you mean by the physics of galaxy clusters? What I mean by that is um, the easiest way to explain that is to talk about a, an alternative method uh, in which you do need to make such, um, you do need to worry about the physics. So in general, other methods rely on direct observations of the content of the galaxy cluster itself. And so this is achieved through, say, X-ray observations of the gas that lives inside the cluster or of the starlight from the galaxies uh, in the cluster. Although we can make these observations, the mass of a galaxy cluster is dominated by what we call dark matter, which doesn't emit any light. And so to estimate the mass of a galaxy cluster from observations of the luminous content, you need to make an assumption about how the luminous content of the cluster traces the underlying dark matter. And that's what I mean by physics, uh, as in we don't really understand the physics of the interplay between dark matter and luminous matter in clusters. So... That also points to the kind of complementary aspect of the survey, which is to get a better handle on the physics of that interplay between dark and luminous matter. You said earlier that uh, measuring the mass mm -hmm. of those galaxy clusters can give information on dark energy. Mm -hmm. Can you first tell us what dark energy is, and maybe after that tell us how do you go from the mass of those clusters sure. to information on dark energy? Okay, so uh, back in the 90s, astronomers realized that the um, expansion of the universe is accelerating. And uh, before that, we, we thought that the expansion was just gradually slowing down under the influence of gravity. And um, essentially, the current expansion rate of the universe is a competition between gravity pulling stuff back towards you and the initial impulse provided from the Big Bang. And yet, distant supernovae, exploding stars, were discovered to be fainter and therefore further away than, than, than was previously thought. And therefore, the, the universe must have expanded more from which you infer this accelerating expansion. In very broad terms, the, the physics that's responsible for this accelerating expansion is referred to as dark energy. There are a variety of, um, of theories as to, as to what exactly what that physics is, and there's huge efforts to try and pin down that physics and actually understand it. So if you take a universe that uh, is expanding and that expansion is accelerating, that, that makes distant objects um, fainter and dimmer than would be in a universe that isn't ex accelerating. But also, um, that accelerating expansion pushes, literally pushes stuff further away from other stuff, right? So it, by stuff, I mean like the matter that, that clumps together to form galaxy clusters. It's like when we talk about the, the cookie and the, the resins on the cookie where everything is expanding and everything goes further away. Yes, that's right. So um, galaxy clusters um, form what we refer to as hierarchically. In other words, uh, smaller galaxy systems like galaxy groups, they, um, they merge together to form bigger systems that we refer to as galaxy clusters. If the expansion of the universe is accelerating, then that, then that acceleration is pushing the, kind of the subunits, if you like, that ultimately merge together to form the galaxy cluster further away. And therefore, it takes longer the period of assembly of galaxy clusters is, is becomes more protracted. And so then how does the mass of galaxy clusters relate to all of that? You can measure the mass of one galaxy cluster. Well, that doesn't tell you very much. It tells you about that galaxy cluster. But if you can measure the mass of a, of a large sample of galaxy clusters, a number, you know, say 100 or so, and plot a histogram. So this is literally a question of measuring uh, a histogram of galaxy cluster masses in the local universe and also in the distant universe. And comparing those two histograms and from that getting constraints on dark energy. What do you mean by local universe and distant universe? 
so by distant universe, I mean when the universe was roughly half of its current age. Um, technical terms, you know, a redshift of one. So this is you know, uh, six and a half billion years ago or so. And what I mean by the local universe is more like, a, say, two billion years ago. Can you apply this method of gravitational lensing to clusters of galaxies at a greater distance? Yes, you can. There are limits, though. So currently, the um, I'm studying galaxy clusters um, that um, you know from you know at a what we refer to as a look back time of of two billion years, and the galaxies that are behind these clusters are the, the lights travel for six and a half billion years to to get to us and pass through the foreground mass in the, in these clusters. It will be very interesting to apply similar methods to measure the mass of galaxy clusters that are at a similar look back time to exactly those galaxies that we're using to make the measurement on the local clusters. That points to a problem in that we, we need to apply this method to study clusters at, at great distances. We need to get much deeper, much more sensitive data in order to measure these galaxies at, at, um, that are still further away behind the more distant clusters. Uh, so, so there will be limits to how far we can apply these methods. By using this two-pronged approach in your survey of X-ray and the weak lensing, the X-ray gives you a measure of the baryonic mass, so the mass that we're comprised of, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Yes. And the weak lensing gives you a total mass of the galaxy, including the dark matter. Mm -hmm. How do these compare to each other? Are you getting a lot more baryonic matter, or is the dark matter dominating significantly? The, um, yeah, the dark matter dominates. Yeah, in a word, yes. And the uh, so an interesting um, quantity to measure is the um, the baryon fraction. In other words, you divide the um, divide the mass of a, a cluster that's in the form of ordinary matter like us. Divide that by the total mass that includes all of the dark matter, and we get we get fractions of you know, of order fifteen percent, which is entirely consistent with um, with other observations and um, you know and with theoretical expectations. And how does your survey link into the evolution of galactic groups and galaxies? One of the key things that will come out of this survey, uh, that's called the Local Cluster Substructure Survey, is that we will uh, basically provide a, a sort of a low redshift, a local universe sort of baseline study of uh, of galaxy clusters. And so this will this will make uh, this sample of clusters a, a kind of reference study against which galaxy clusters um, at higher redshifts, you know, greater distances. Uh, against which they can be compared, uh, and that'll help astronomers in the future to to interpret and, and understand the the measurements that they'll make on on big samples of uh, of clusters in the future. Okay, and you mentioned at the beginning that uh, you use also clusters to infer the physics of large scale structure. Mm -hmm. um, can you maybe talk a bit more about that? Yes, of course. So on the one hand, measuring the kind of cluster mass measurements that I've talked about so far, mass measurements made on quite large scale. So we're trying to really estimate the, the total mass of, of a galaxy cluster. And that's really useful if you want to try to constrain cosmological parameters, as I just discussed earlier. On the other hand, it's also interesting to measure the mass of a galaxy cluster on very small scales. Uh, right in the central regions, for example, and and so by comparing the uh, mass measurements you get from gravitational lensing on very small scales in clusters with the mass measurements that you get from X-ray data on the same small scales, uh, and seeing how well they agree, basically dividing the lensing mass by the X-ray mass, and you might hope the answer is one <laughs> that the two agree. But if they don't agree, then that's a signature of um, of other physics, right? The physics beyond the assumptions that you need to make in order to get the X-ray mass. So what you assume to, to make the X-ray mass measurement is that the, the gas uh, in the cluster that is emitting the X-rays is, is in equilibrium with the underlying mass distribution that you're probing with, with the gravitational lensing. If they're not in equilibrium, then you get an answer that's different from one when you divide the two mass measurements. So basically what you're saying is that with the X-ray, it's, it's a way of testing the physics we use to infer the total mass from the X-ray yes. by comparing it with the total mass measured from weak lensing. That's right, yeah. Yes. And so by making these comparisons on small scales, potentially we can get constraints on uh, the strength of magnetic fields in the centers of galaxy clusters or constraints on um, cosmic rays and, and such like, potentially also constraints on uh, rotation of galaxy clusters. It's very easy you know, when look, looking at the night sky through a very big telescope to forget the fact that uh, you know, the possibility that galaxy clusters and similar systems may actually be rotating, for example. How massive is a typical cluster? 
That's a really good question. So the simplest thing to say is that galaxy clusters are the most massive objects in the universe, right? And order of magnitude, the most massive clusters weigh 10 to the power 15 times more than our sun. So that's one with 15 zeros. And I've tried for a while to come up with a nice analogy, you know, to help particularly members of the public get their head around, you know, these kind of scales within within physics that we deal with day to day. So what kind of comparison can I make between, you know, something that's really tiny and every day and something that's larger and every day? But the problem is that the numbers are just so big, right? And I haven't come up with one yet. So you kind of just think of a huge unimaginable number. <laughs> How about in terms of mass of the Milky Way, for example? To compare with the mass of the Milky Way, then um, say 10,000 times more than the mass of the Milky Way. 10 to 100,000 times more. Yeah, so the Milky Way isn't quite an everyday object, but yeah, Gives it helps. <laughs> it helps. And do you have an idea of how big a volume these, these clusters of galaxies encompass? The typical um, radius of these galaxy clusters is um, is of order a few, a few million light years. For a photon to travel from one side of one of these galaxy clusters to, to another might take, you know, of order 5 million years. Can you find anything about the individual galaxies in these clusters from your survey? Yes. Um, so in addition to what I've been describing so far, um, we're also observing a lot of these clusters with um, the Herschel Space Observatory. So this is a new um, observatory, a new satellite that ESA, the European Space Agency, put in space um, um, a couple of years ago now. And this satellite is operating in what's known as the far infrared, so wavelengths between 100 and 500 microns. So this is effectively observing heat from these galaxies. The reason why that's interesting is that galaxy, a typical galaxy that lives in a galaxy cluster is what we refer to as red and dead. In other words, um, not forming many stars and uh, doesn't contain much gas or dust. And yet a typical galaxy that doesn't live in a galaxy cluster is, um, well, I suppose the opposite of red and dead in these terms is blue and alive, I suppose, in that it's, it's forming stars. It's typically a spiral galaxy like, like our Milky Way. And somehow, like I mentioned earlier, galaxy clusters form hierarchically, like smaller galaxy systems, individual galaxies merge together to form clusters that are these huge beasts, if you like. Somehow, these blue disk galaxies change into, um, into these red dead galaxies in the centers of, of galaxy clusters. And we already know that some of the galaxies that make this journey from being blue and alive to red and dead go through a period of, of increased star formation. And they, if the increase in star formation, that's in the kind of death throes, as it were, in, in going towards being red and dead, if that enhanced period of star formation is sufficiently intense, then these galaxies produce uh, a lot of dust. And this dust absorbs the ultraviolet radiation from these young stars and re-emits it in what we refer to as the far infrared. In other words, re-emits it as what we think of as heat. And so Herschel is a fantastic machine for uh, finding um, and finding such galaxies and measuring their properties. And so we're doing a big survey of these relatively nearby clusters to find such galaxies in these clusters and to um, uh, try to disentangle. There's a wide range of, of, of physics that could be responsible for... Um, the properties of these galaxies. We're trying to disentangle these different uh, possibilities and actually learn. What you're saying, I'm not sure I understood perfectly, but that those those blue and alive galaxies mm -hmm. become red and dead by falling into the cluster or being accreted into the cluster, or is it... Yes. Okay. In a word. <laughs> yes. So in this process of... Mer is it merging? Or will they just fall well, again? That, well, that's... It triggers the star formation, which causes the morphology of the, of the galaxy to change. Yep, that's one of the possibilities, yes. Yeah. Could that happen to our Milky Way? Uh yeah, so that's a really nice way of um of thinking about this. In that context, the Milky Way lives in what we know as the local group. So it's like a little group of galaxies. So um some of your listeners may be uh, familiar with M31 or the Andromeda Galaxy. So these are two blue and alive disk galaxies in a little group with lots of other little satellites. And this group lives in the outskirts of a galaxy cluster known as the Virgo Cluster. And um, one day, the um, this this local group of galaxies that we live in will ultimately fall into uh, the Virgo Cluster and... Um, Potentially, the Milky Way will go through a period of elevated star formation, maybe uh, sufficiently intense to, to, you know, to make it a much dustier uh, environment, and, and its infrared luminosity would, uh, you know, the heat that it emits would, would therefore go up. 
you know, maybe it's detectable by uh, astronomers on the other side of the universe pointing their equivalent of the Herschel Space Observatory in our direction in the future. In clusters of galaxies, you see a lot more elliptical shaped things, or S0 class galaxies, so yep. ellipticals with a sort of disk around them, yep. compared to ones in just the field. Yep. Is this also caused by the merging? And falling in. That's all part of the same story, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, by red and dead, I'm referring to elliptical and, and S0 or lenticular galaxies. Yeah, that's right. Presumably, there is a relationship between these S0 galaxies, which are they do have a disk, but there's no star formation going on in it, and the disk galaxy, you know, the blue and alive disk spiral galaxies that that fell in. And so, how does that star formation turn off? Is is one way of posing the question. I guess, Graham, thank you for telling us about your survey of clusters of galaxies and merging and taking us a tour of the wider universe. So thank you for joining us on the Jogcast. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that, Libby and Melanie. And now it's time for the part of the show which we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. As you may already know, NASA's satellite Juno successfully launched on the 5th of August and should reach Jupiter by July 2016, an orbit for about a year studying the composition of of Jupiter's atmosphere. For example the satellite will be trying to determine how much water there is in the atmosphere. We'll also be studying the magnetic field of Jupiter and the northern and southern aurora. But the most important thing that I think about this one... The most one... important thing about Gino is that it's carrying three Lego figurines yes. <laughs> in the likeness of the Roman god Jupiter, his wife Juno, after which the satellite is named, and Galileo Galilei. That's just so cool. I, I, I want them. What if the residents of Jupiter hypothetically, or any other (laughs) extraterrestrial found three Lego men. I mean, what would they make of us, them? I think they'd get a shock when they visited Earth and found we were actually much bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Became expecting two-inch high little yellow men. But going back to the actual mission for a sec, (laughs) if I can. So it's not getting there till 2016. That's, That's five years getting to Jupiter and only one year in orbit. That's quite a long time just travelling. I mean, I know it just takes that long to get to Jupiter, but you think that they would want a longer mission once they got there? I don't know. But yeah, possibly. Probably fuel constraints and things like that. Yeah. In another NASA mission, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter fired some thrusters yesterday, um, about 20 hours ago, as we recall so this. yesterday was the 10th of August, yesterday right? Yesterday was the 10th of August, yeah. yes. And it's moving from its normal 50-kilometre orbit above the surface of the moon down to about 20 kilometers and we'll be taking some higher resolution images of the lunar surface including the apollo sites which may hopefully shut the conspiracy theorists up for a while i don't think they'd ever ever stop (laughs) they they might have a bit of an argument because there's going to be some slight effects from the caused by the fact that even though it's moving to a closer orbit it's staying at the same speed so uh the way we've learned most about this little manoeuvre that the LRO is performing is fire its Twitter feed, where it <laughs> tweets in the first person. And uh, it did say that potentially it moving around in orbit at about 3,500 miles per hour may cause a little bit of blurring when it gets down to its its lower orbit. But I'm sure, I mean, the images of the uh, the Apollo landing site are pretty good from its previous vantage point, so I'm sure they'll be good again. So this 20-kilometre orbit, is it permanent or are they going back up again? Uh, I think it's just a little dip from what I've read. I mean, between August the 14th and the 19th, it'll be at this lower orbit and then it's going to move back to the 50-kilometre orbit until December. And then beyond that, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this is all information based on Twitter. It pretty much is, yeah, (laughs) Uh, which is very cool, but there's only so much detail you can put in 140 characters. Yeah, and if you want to follow the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, it's... L-R-O underscore NASA. At this point in the show, I would like to lament the lack of Evan Keane. Yes, Evan wanted us to lament the lack of him in the show as he's arriving a bit too late to uh, George O'Banks Centre for Astrophysics to be in this recording. But two people who have been around all day and are able to record things are Mark Perver, who's putting your questions to Tim O'Brien. The first question comes from Sean Mulcahy, who asks, How often is the Lovell Telescope struck by lightning each year? And does this have any effect on the scientific instruments? Okay, very good question. Um, in fact, I, I did a quick poll of telescope controllers today <laughs> to see what see what they would tell me. Um, and Merza, who's uh, worked at Chodrell for about 10 years or so, 
um, says he's never seen a lightning strike on the Lovell telescope. Uh, and Mark, who's been at George Wall for 28 years, says he's seen two lightning strikes on the Lovell telescope while he's been there. And he says, um, he says what you get is a massive big flash, a very loud bang, scares the living daylights out of him. <laughs> um, but, uh, but there were no problems operationally. Um, so it didn't actually affect anything as a result of that. Now, um, I guess that's probably partly because it's covered in lightning conductors. I didn't actually, I did have a word with the electrician as well um, to see, but he just said, oh, it's covered in lightning conductors. So, so there probably are strikes, but they don't actually hit the telescope itself. Yeah, so they certainly don't cause a problem with the receiver and things. So, um, And he also said that, in fact, the, there's probably less strikes than you might think because relatively near to the telescope, um, there's a big 150-foot high mast which has... Um, well, it has an internet connection with a microwave radio link, but it also has um, the old microwave radio links for Merlin to the remote telescopes. Right. And that mass being a sort of narrow, sort of pointy structure um, is more likely to attract the lightning strikes. Right. Uh, and the Lovell telescope is generally a fairly big sort of amorphous structure, so it's not really too pointy, certainly compared to these masts that are nearby. So he thinks that might be another reason why. Um, they apparently do have rules. Um, if there's a thunderstorm coming, the controller won't, people aren't allowed to get off the structure or onto the structure of the telescope. Right. Um, and the, so if you're on there, you're stuck on there. Would you be and, safe? Would, uh, well, I think so, because it's not going to go to ground through you. So I think the problem no. is like jumping off and like then giving a link to ground so that, so the strike might go through you on the yeah. way to ground as you sort of step off. So, so I think that's the idea behind that. Um, Ben in the Pulsar group also says that, that LOFAR uh, does, you know, the, the sort of array of radio antenna in, in the Netherlands and beyond now um, does have lightning strikes um, and they tend to hit the control buildings, which are actually, it's very flat out in Holland, mm. as you probably were, um, and the control buildings are about the highest bits around and they do actually do get lightning strikes and they do see it in their data as well at low frequencies, it's low frequencies, which is perhaps whether it'd have more of an effect from the thunderstorms as well i think but there you go um there are occasional lightning strikes but not very often and if there are any smaller ones the the lightning conductors help us out if it struck directly onto the antenna you might think it would fry the electronics are they saying that, that doesn't really happen? well i think it's it's always it's all in a box so certainly as far as i'm aware that doesn't happen so it's, it's almost like there's a sort of faraday case there's a metal box around the focus box around the receiver so i guess it's probably unlikely for that to happen um, it's sort of directed away from that, basically. Well, the second question is from Charles Woolley and takes us a lot further out, way out into the solar system. He says, everyone keeps talking about the Oort cloud as the source of all comets, but every comet that I've heard about seems to come from the Kuiper belt. Has anyone discovered a comet that comes from the Oort cloud? Yeah, um... So there's lots of different... I mean, first of all, we should probably say what the Oort cloud is. Yeah. Um, the Oort cloud's named after a, a Dutch astronomer, I think he was actually, Jan Oort, um, who first came up with the idea. And the idea is there's this big reservoir of comets at very large distances from the sort of solar system as we think of it, the sort of planetary region of the solar system. So way out beyond, you know, Neptune and Pluto and Eris and these other things. In fact, a, a very large fraction of the way to the nearest star nearest other star in fact um now the the reason he came up with that idea sort of explains really answers charles's question i guess um because when you look at comets you can sort of uh, attempt to measure the periods some comets um, return on observable timescales so the classic being halley's comet which is 76 years if i remember rightly it's so. a period um so you know even in the course of one human life you might be lucky enough to see two appearances of halley's comet i was lucky enough to see one in 1986 but i doubt i'll see the next one <laughs> um so um you've basically got what we there's a relatively short period comet and you can work out the sort of size of the orbit so just from you know knowing that for example you know the earth takes a year to go around the sun and it's a typical distance from the sun we call one astronomical unit you can work out what the distance from the sun would be for the sort of uh the, what's called the semi-major axis the basically the you know roughly the average um radius of the orbit of the comet and those things those sort of relatively short period comets do indeed originate from regions often around Jupiter's orbit because Jupiter's been perturbing them, but also into this Kuiper belt, which is beyond Neptune. Um, now, there's also very long period comets, and the sort of 
proper definition, I think, is that long period comets have got uh, orbital periods greater than 200 years. But it's thought, and of course, you know, this is from observations of them and no one person has watched them for thousands of years, mm. uh, but it's thought that those periods can extend up to millions of years from looking at the, you know, the, the parameters of the orbit. Um, so there's an example of sort of looking up some examples. One example was, is Comet West, which there's some beautiful photographs of from the mid-1970s with a really spectacular tail. Um, and Comet West, the estimates of its period are sort of range from hundreds of thousands to millions of years. And if you work out what size its orbit would be, that gives it a, a, a semi-major axis, a sort of typical radius of orbit of, of tens of thousands of astronomical units or tens of thousands of times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So that puts it way out beyond um, Neptune, Pluto and so on. And that would be an example of one that would be thought to have originated in the Oort cloud. Right. Uh, and the other thing you see with these long period comets is that their orbits are sort of... Um, lots of different inclinations relative to the plane of the planet's orbits. So they're sort of coming from all directions, if you like. And so the idea is the Oort clouds are roughly spherical, um, whereas the Kuiper belt is sort of flattened. And so a lot of these shorter period comets, unless they've been perturbed by the planets, tend to have orbits that are more closely in the plane of the solar system. So I think the answer is there are comets that we think come from the Oort cloud. They're the long period comets, um, but the problem is we haven't directly detected the Oort cloud. So we haven't seen, we haven't taken pictures of the Oort cloud. It's not detectable at that distance with the size of objects we're talking about. So it's basically to do with looking at the orbits of these things and calculating them back, working out what the size of the orbit would be and postulating the existence of this reservoir of comets. Right. So we think they've, because we can see them, we think they've come from somewhere and that tracing yeah. it back. Yeah. And they, they appear to be bound to the solar system, so they're not, um, you know, as far as you can tell, for at least some of them anyway, they're not coming from interstellar space. They're actually sort of bound gravitationally to the solar system, but the size of their orbit is huge compared to the size of the planet's orbit, which you get from measuring the period. So is the Oort cloud dangerous if it's sending these things in? It feels like a game of Space Invaders <laughs> where it's kind of pinging in these yeah. comets yeah. occasionally into the inner solar yeah. system. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I think um, the idea is that... Um, uh, the Oort cloud pro probably didn't form out at that distance. It probably is uh, the comets maybe were scattered out to that distance by perturbations in the in the solar system earlier on. Um, yeah, I think passing stars. So you know, on, as, as the as the sun orbits the Milky Way, passing stars may well perturb the Oort cloud and drop a comet in. So they're the dangerous comets. They're the ones that you know we sort of know the periodic ones. We can measure the orbits and yeah we can sort of predict when they come close to the earth but it's the one that it's the one that falls in that you've never seen before and suddenly appears coming out of the sun so you can't even see it at night and head straight towards earth that would be that would be the planet killer i guess right <laughs> sleep <Okay>. well <laughs> we get at least a few years notice wouldn't we well, I'm not sure. I think, I think if you were really unlucky, if you picked one that was coming towards us from the direction of the sun, maybe there's a way of doing it so you wouldn't actually see it. You wouldn't get much warning. Right. Interesting. <laughs> well, on that note, let's go even <laughs> further out. Ernie Stevenson was asked a question about galaxies such as Andromeda and says these galaxies are many thousands of light years across. And given that the fastest rate at which information is carried is the speed of light, how can such big objects exhibit a coherent structure. Is there a difference then between different sides of such a large object as a galaxy? Or is their structure a con consequence of their evolutionary timescale? Okay, yeah, I think there's a couple of things though that, that, that Ernie's getting at really. Um, he's right to say that galaxies are huge. Um, so for example, you know, maybe 100,000 light years across for the visible disk. Mm. So if you were to look at a galaxy like Andromeda and you looked at I guess if it was edge on, um, and you could look at the far edge, that light would have taken a hundred thousand times, a hundred thousand years longer than the light from the near edge. Now, of course, it's sort of tilted at a bit of an angle, so it's more like fifty, sixty thousand years, um, difference. Now, in terms of the, if you think about the stars that make up that disk, let's say, um, then yeah, the, the, the evolutionary lifetime of a star is much longer than fifty thousand years. So in general, um, you know, even the most massive stars probably live their lives in the course of, say, 10 million years or something. So you won't see much difference, really, between 
one side of a galaxy and the other in, in those terms. But I think more, you know, another thing to think about is the galaxy's rotating. Hmm. So you could say, okay, you know, when you look at these nice spiral structures you see in galaxies and things, is there a sort of light travel time delay effect that would warp the appearance of it because you'd be seeing the far side of it farther in the past than the near side of it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just worked that out <laughs> to, okay. to see whether, to see whether, um, what the, you know, what sort of magnitude of effect you get. Um, and for Andromeda in particular, um, its orbital period, the, the length of time it takes for it to rotate once, um, is about 250 million years. Um, basically, you can measure the speeds of things like um, H2 regions, which are these, you know, as you know, these regions of ionized gas around young stars, and you can do measure the spectrum, measure the Doppler shift of the lines in the spectrum that you can, so you can actually measure speeds of things. They're moving at about 250 kilometers per second. Which is fast. Yes. Um, in, you know, in a sort of circular velocity, if you like, around the galaxy. But they've got a long way to travel. They're at a radius of about, um, 30 odd thousand light years or so, those particular ones from the middle. So if you work out how long it takes them to go around once, it's a long time, 250 million years. So when you think that the sort of light crossing time from the back far side of the galaxy to the near side is 50 or 60 thousand years or something, um, it's that fraction of 250 million years you've got to mm. work out and it's basically 0.02% of the orbital period right so if you think about what you know it's only moved round 0.02% of the way around the the circle if you like mm. in the time it takes the light to travel from one side to the other so again i think it's it's just not you know it's certainly not um you it wouldn't be discernible on looking at a picture of the of the overall structure of the galaxy yeah and I guess what we're saying is that it can be a coherent structure, but you wouldn't expect to see any large-scale changes in less than 66,000 years, the light-crossing time. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, well, from far away, let's go to uh, everywhere. <laughs> we have a question from Jeff Mutton about dark matter, and he says, if the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background are caused by cold dark matter, how is it that that is so cold when the baryonic or normal matter at that time was in thermal equilibrium with radiation and was therefore very hot. Right, okay. So um, let's just sort of reiterate, I guess, what this th- th- this is all about. Um, um, the cosmic microwave background is this light that we see now in the radio part of the spectrum that was produced um, about, uh, well, we think about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Um, and we see, we measure its temperature Effectively, it's brightness all over the sky. Um, and it's basically roughly the same temperature all over the sky, which is why we say that it's in this sort of equilibrium. Um, and so the matter and the radiation are in this sort of equilibrium. The, the radiation had a temp, you know, the temperature of the universe basically at that time was about 3000 degrees. So relatively warm. That's not ha- hot in astrophysical terms, but relatively warm. Mm. Um, and the little, there are little tiny fluctuations in this temperature. And those little tiny fluctuations, um, as Jeff says, are to do with, or we believe, are to do with the effects of cold dark matter. And I guess what he's saying is, how come the dark matter is cold, but the radiation and the normal matter, the other matter there, is hot at least at 3,000 degrees? Yeah, thermodynamics would put them at similar temperatures. Right. So the problem, two things here. First of all, the term cold dark matter is a bit of a, uh, confusing one, I guess, because the cold doesn't necessarily mean what you might think it might mean. Um, it was it was a term that came about because there's also an idea called hot dark matter, mm-hmm. and hot dark matter was a type of dark matter that was uh, postulated to have particles that were moving around at very close to the speed of light. And because we think of temp- temperatures basically measured by the speed at which the particles move in anything, that was termed hot dark matter. Mm-hmm. And then then there was an idea that then that was things like neutrinos which are moving if not at the speed of light, very close to the speed of light. Um, then there's this idea of cold dark matter, which are things like WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles, which move more slowly, not relativistically. Um, and they're so, by contrast, they were called cold dark matter. That doesn't mean to say it's cold. Mm. You know, in fact, how you would define its temperature, it's not really the same thing as talking about a, a thermodynamic temperature in the same way as we do with other things. Um but the other reason that the, the other the explanation really for this is that is it in fact um, this type of dark matter, the uh, this type of what we call non-baryonic dark matter like these wimps, is um, 
collisionless. We call we say it's collisionless, which means that um, it doesn't interact in the same way as other normal matter does via electromagnetic forces, for example. Um, so uh, it does feel gravity, but it doesn't feel these other forces, which are the sort of forces that you know stop my stop my hand going through this wall here, for example. Or like, just bang the wall of the studio there. <laughs> like, uh, interacted strongly. Or even this this microphone. <laughs> um, the reason I can't put my hand through that is because of electromagnetic forces. Okay. Um, so these weakly interacting massive particles, they they you know they don't feel those forces, and so they're much less. You know, you don't they don't feel collisions in the same way, although they do feel gravity. Now, what it means in the early universe is that um, before recombination, while the universe was still ionized, before the cosmic microwave background was emitted, um, there was lots of electrons, lots of photons flying around. The photons were scattering off the electrons. And that means that those photons, that, that light, that radiation, exerts a pressure on the gas, which has the electrons in it, the ionized gas. And that stops that gas collapsing to form structures because it would want to collapse under its own weight but the radiation, the pressure of the radiation exerted by these photons interacting with the electrons holds it up from being collapsing. But you don't get the same interaction between the radiation and the cold dark matter particles because they don't feel this electromagnetic force. Right, so radiation's nothing to them. Nothing, yes, yeah, that's right. So they just feel their own gravity mm. and they do collapse on themselves and they start to form these what we call gravitational potential wells. They start to form the seeds, basically, for the structures. Um, but they're basically just made of cold dark matter. And then what happens is the universe expands and it recombines. So the, the electrons and the protons recombine to form neutral hydrogen. Um, the universe becomes transparent. The photons stream out freely. That's what forms the microwave background we see now. And at that point, the normal gas, the baryonic gas, um, because there isn't this radiation pressure anymore, the photons aren't hitting the free electrons because the electrons have recombined to make the hydrogen. Um, that normal gas is able to collapse in, start to collapse in on itself, and so it falls into the gravitational potential wells that have already been formed by the dark matter. Okay. And that all got around this problem with that we see structures now, um, but those structures wouldn't have had time to form from in the edge of the universe from the Big Bang to now if they only started forming after recombination, so after the background, background was emitted. Right. There wasn't time for it to have happened, so there had to have been this seeding process of the dark matter, the dark matter halos, these gravitational potential wells. So there's more indirect evidence for dark matter. Yep. Again. Yep, certainly all part all part of the co- complex model that does still hang together largely yeah. um, that explains these things. Well, a slightly related question, or at least related to what you were just talking about, is the last one from Richard Elvin. And he says... After the Big Bang, the universe cooled and was able to form neutral hydrogen. And then there was reionization when ultraviolet radiation from the first stars heated the universe up again. Assuming that the universe is open and will expand forever, will there ever be a point where it deionizes again on the way to heat death? Right, okay, yeah, it it does follow on quite well from the last question. So basically we talked about this idea that there was... The universe was ionized, um, and so the elect- if you just think about it as hydrogen, there's just electrons and protons separated. Um, and then as it expands out and cools down, they can, um, they say recombine, and it's a silly name really, recombination, because it wasn't, it wasn't that it was combined before, so it's not really recombining. Okay. It's combining for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, the electrons and the protons come together to make hydrogen atoms, neutral hydrogen atoms. Um, but yeah, then you get a period of the universe we call the dark ages. Um, before the first stars were formed. So then you've got that process where you've got those dark matter halos, those gravitational potential wells, all the normal baryonic matter can start collapsing in once the universe has become neutral, once after the cosmic microwave background has been emitted. Um, and that can start, you know, the, the stuff collapses in, it gets denser, um, the gas actually heats up and then cools by radiation, um, and you can start to form denser and denser objects, and you can form the first stars. Now, the first stars light up, and they're hot, probably massive. They're called Population 3 stars. We've not yet seen them, but we hope to in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the ultraviolet light from those floods out from these new stars that are lit up, pinged on, like light bulbs okay. switching all over the universe. Um, and that that ionizes the this neutral hydrogen again. Now, he's asking, will they ever deionize? And uh-huh. In fact, that we could call that recombine again. Right, a re-recom- well, it would be a recombination <laughs> this time. Wouldn't yeah, it? it would. Combine for the second time. Yeah. So, um, well, at the moment, if you look at, say, something like the Milky Way, um, 
then the Milky Way's got this interstellar medium, the gas between the stars, and it's made up of, there's lots of different phases of it. So there's like a hot phase and a warm phase and a cool phase. In fact, um, most of the volume of the Milky Way between the stars is made up of ionized hydrogen. Um, but not most of the mass of the interstellar medium, actually. Most of the mass of the interstellar medium is actually in the form of molecular hydrogen and neutral hydrogen, atomic hydrogen, that has, you know, recombined. Uh -huh. Um, and that's in dense clouds. So, so basically you've got this sort of low density, hotter, ionized stuff, mm -hmm. and then embedded within it, these sort of colder clouds of denser, neutral and molecular stuff. Um, so there is ionized stuff around. Um, and the question is whether, and in fact, between the galaxies, there's ionized hydrogen as well, but even lower densities than it is within the galaxies. So the question is whether as the universe expands and expands and expands, assuming it never recollapses again, um, and all the stars start to die out and we all have this horrible cold um, death in the future, the heat death of the universe. A long way in the future, though. It's a long way <laughs> in the future, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> um, uh, then will stuff uh, recombine again? And in fact, you can work out how long it would take for, for a given set of particles to recombine. You've basically got electrons and protons flying around. And you can sort of imagine if they're going to come together and stick together to make a neutral hydrogen atom, two things have to be the case. One is, if it's very hot, they're flying around very fast, it's harder to make them stick together. Mm -hmm. um, so the cooler the gas is, the more likely it is to happen. And the other is, it needs to be dense, the gas, because if it's low density, the chances of them coming close enough are very low. So it affects, it's affected by the temperature you've got and the density you've got. Uh, if you're inside a galaxy... Although the universe is expanding, the galaxy itself isn't expanding, so the density is not really going to change. And in fact, you may not, probably don't expect the temperature to change either. So it's not like the expansion of the universe will cause the space within a galaxy to expand and get less dense and cooler. So you've got to really just think about it and say, okay, well, what will happen um, as, for example, the stars burn out and maybe you run out of material to form new stars or something. Uh, so if that were to happen... Um, you can work out how long it would take. The density of the interstellar medium, it's about one particle per cubic centimetre. So if you imagine a little block, little dice or something, a die, mm -hmm. um, one centimetre by one centimetre by one centimetre, in the interstellar medium, typically, you might get one particle in that space. Which is a very low density. It's very low. I mean, I, compared to water, if you had the same amount of water, a little cubic centimetre of water, there's 10 to the 23 so right. that's that's a one followed by 23 zeros atoms in that. So there's only one in these. So very low density. It would take, at that density, it takes the interstellar medium about 100,000 years to recombine. Now, that's a long time, but short on the timescale of a galaxy. Mm -hmm. So in fact, in, in, say, a galaxy like the Milky Way, the, the interstellar medium is being kept ionized by light from stars and the motions of stars and gas clouds that sort of cause shocks and things that keep it ionised. So actually, you know, if you were to turn off all those sources of ionising radiation, say, mm. then it would take something like 100,000 years for gas of that density to recombine. Right. So, yeah, I guess I guess when the stars die out and things, it will, it will de-ionise on its way to heat death. Yeah, because as the universe gets older, we can observe that there is, on average, less star formation, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So yeah. it's not a limitless process of recycling. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just it's not just that the, you know things are forming out of stars and then everything's you know when the star dies, not all the material it's made of is recycled back into the interstellar medium. So mm. yeah, it's not it's not an endless not an endless process. But if it was expanding forever because of dark energy, would there come a point when the expansion with the dark energy would just rip everything apart, even even the atoms themselves? Oh, I don't know. Good question. I don't know, actually. I don't really know enough about dark energy to know the answer to that. You don't even know if it exists, really. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the thing, you know, what you're referring to really is what I was saying about the fact that, you know, when you think about an expanding universe, you know, the space between me and you now mm. is not... I'm not getting farther away from you because of the expansion of the universe no. because on these sorts of size scales, the gra gravity completely dominates or and other forces, of course, on our size scales, electromagnetic forces, on the size scales of solar systems and individual galaxies. They're not expanding because of the expansion of the universe. But I guess your question is, what does dark energy do to that? I don't know. In the very, very, very long run, yeah. Let's get let's get a dark energy expert to answer that. Or as, I mean, prob probably we don't know enough about the way dark energy works. 
while on the cheery topic of heat death of the universe, <laughs> we'll sign off. Thanks very much. That's no problem. Thanks for that, Tim and Mark. Now on to the feedback section. We have a postcard from Natalia in Brazil. Yay! We like post. We love post. Natalia says, Dear Jogcast, I've listened to your pleas to send in postcards from all over the world. So here it is. Florianopolis. This small island town where I live is on the southern part of Brazil, which means it is now too cold to go swimming at the beach. I'm a postdoc here and listen to your show every so often. As I'm used to optical wavelengths, I enjoy a great deal of your talking of the radio telescope up there in Manchester. <laughs> Cheers. It's a really nice postcard as well of the beach that it's too cold to swim in and some really nice stamps as well. I know that I shouldn't geek out about stamps, but there's one with a trumpet on and then some cartoon characters and it's really cool. That beach is making me very jealous since it's currently chucking it down outside and it's the middle of August. Yeah, Manchester rocks. <laughs> On the forum, J.R. Edge would like to request a mini Jogcast Netherlands event now that Megan has moved to Astron. So if you haven't listened to the August show, Megan has left us once again and has moved to the Netherlands. And J.R. Edge, I guess he's got a point, he's got a case, because he did come all the way over from the Netherlands for Jogcast Live with his son. So I don't know how many Netherlands listeners we have, but if you're in the Netherlands and you listen to the Jogcast, get in touch and maybe we can bully Megan into having a meetup. We've also had lots of activity on our new Facebook page, so thanks for everyone for joining in there. Tom Howard is glad to see Carter back with the Southern Skies for August, and has been discussing the background noise. Most listeners will know that the um, audio quality from the Carter Observatory isn't the best. Unfortunately, this is due to the recording equipment that they have, and we don't have any money to make it any better. But everyone started giving suggestions of how they imagine John Field recording the night sky, so I kind of vision him in the garden, dark skies, clear night, lying back with one of those water feature um, waterfalls kind of <laughs> gurgling in the background. John Moran visions waves as if he's recording on the beach. Tom Howard thinks it's a fountain like me. And Susan Kelly pictures it being recorded in an open telescope dome with the wind whistling around. And apparently people like that background noise, so we're going to keep it. That's good. Should I put background noise in when I edit the show together? Ooh, where shall we be? <laughs> I think I think some pigeons would be great at the centre of uh, maybe Piccadilly Gardens or something. Okay. <laughs> you have to sample that pigeon noise now. Just see me running around with a microphone and a pigeon. Okay, moving on. So moving on to Twitter. Uh, first off, I'd like to apologise to at Salford Gareth. Salford Gareth. Um, apparently he was on the train with me the other day and tweeted at the Jodcast saying, I can see someone in a Jodcast t-shirt, which through a very good description, having read it after getting off the train, Jen deduced that it was me. And I was rather upset that it wasn't a Jodcast listener, because yeah. that would be more fun. Yeah, well, apparently I'm boring. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. So um, next time, if someone sees me on a train, uh, particularly if it's crossing the Pennines, uh, give me a wave or something, because I my signal cut out and I couldn't find... Uh, Salford Gareth's picture to figure out who in the same carriage as me was <laughs> tweeting at me. So apologies. And yeah, we're a friendly lot, Jogcast t-shirt wearers. So just wave at us. Don't be shy. Don't be just shy. Just say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still upset that I've never been recognised in a Jogcast t-shirt. Twice. I've been recognised twice. <sighs> once on a train and once at a beer festival. Well, the beer clearly acted as some kind of social lubricant. Yep. Also. The guy came and talked to me. It was great times. Speaking of Jodcast t-shirts, we've had a couple new Jod pics posted on Twitter. One is, I assume, of Rebel and Wolf's son at Trinity Beach in far north Queensland, which again, beach picture are very nice. I wish I was there. And Libby is making us jealous on her extended stay in Taiwan and put a picture of her at Hell Valley, which seemed to be some kind of hot springs. Southers pointed out that the Society for Popular Astronomy has been making podcasts, in inverted commas, since 1967. So this seems to be um, a audio magazine distributed through cassette tape, which for those who heard our April Fool's episode two years ago when we did the 1990 episode, that was how we were talking about distributing the uh, the Jodcast as it was. The Society for Popular Astronomy, which uh, Southers is very involved with, they posted a a picture of an article about this tape magazine, Sounds of Astronomy, from the 60s. And it just sounds really cool. I don't. I think it was. Isn't that even pre-cassette? It's kind of real to real, isn't it? <laughs> I have actually no idea. I mean, 
maybe it was on vinyl. <laughs> we're definitely showing our age here yeah but that's really, I, I wonder if it still exists because I'd love to hear that um, we've had some feedback on iTunes so uh, Cosmic Beach has rated the Jogcast with 5 stars so thank you very much and given the review Jogcast forever I love the Jogcast it's informative and entertaining you guys make, make working the night shift easier carry on the good work many thanks so thank you very much Cosmic Beach on Flickr, we had a lovely image of the sun and sunspots on it by Jamie Ball 833 There's also a very impressive image of the Milky Way by Dangerous Dave. So keep adding your pictures to Flickr. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast and on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, the address to send in your postcards is on the website. And that brings us to the end of the show, so all that's left to say is a big thank you to Dr Robert Lang and Dr Graham Smith for being interviewed. The editors were me, Tim O'Brien and Dan Thornton. And the producer was Jen Gupta. So until next time... Jod on. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.